The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So let's uh, go ahead and get into our study tonight. If you'll open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16, Leviticus chapter 16, and it seems like a long time since we've been in our study of the atonement, and it has been quite a few weeks. Uh, The Day of Atonement is described in this 16th chapter of Leviticus, which is the third book of the law. This is uh, Leviticus, as I said, and that, that term, Leviticus, means relating to the Levites. And the book is called Leviticus because it is about the duty, uh, the duties of the tabernacle attendants who were all from the tribe of Levi. Levi is the tribe of the priest. The name in English comes from a transliteration of the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. But uh, uh, in English, if you look, if you were to look at the first chapter, the first few words of, that, of, the, of the first chapter, the book begins, and the Lord called. The Hebrew, there it just simply, and he called. And so in the Hebrew Bible, and he called is the name of this third book of the law. But Leviticus concerns foundational teachings for Israel's ethical moral and ceremonial code, and under those headings also come the dietary laws and the sanitary provisions. So basically, at its core, these were things that taught Israel that they were to be a different people, that they were to be a holy people, a sanctified people. And so the law in Leviticus is intended to set Israel away from all other nations in the world. Now, to the rest of the world, looking at what Israel did and looking at the laws that God gave them, They seem to be quite strange. Leviticus was given during the wilderness wanderings of of Israel as they were on their way to Canaan. And there in Canaan, they would be confronted by the world's most, perhaps for all time, the world's most licentious, perverse, and evil people. I've seen in the excavations of the ancient cities, the ancient Canaanite culture, some unimaginable things. Or at least I thought they were unimaginable until America entered its Canaanite period. And so it's pretty much uh, not too much difference between the two. But Israel was really a stark contrast to those nations that they would live, uh, that they would drive out, rather, not to live among. God wanted them to drive all of those people out. And the people in, in, in Israel, as they entered into Canaan, they had, this, they had this command from the Lord. You are to be a holy people, a sanctified people. Because the Lord has called you to be holy, be holy as God is holy. And we find that that very same thing transitioned into the New Testament where God says about His chosen people today, His, His redeemed people, that we are to be holy as God is holy. So we're to be a, we are a chosen people as Israel was and we are to be different from those that are lost without Christ. As Scripture says, we are a new creation in Christ. But it's rare to find Christians that are radically different from the rest of the world because we tend to think that radical Christianity, those who live that way are just simply nutcases. 
You can't be a radical Christian. We can only stand so much holiness. Don't give us too much holiness. And it seems that most Baptist people fall into one of two extremes. Uh, They either show practically no holiness in their lives, so many times you can't even tell if they are truly the children of God, Whereas on the other side, you have those who have turned holiness, their own sanctified holiness, into a critical judgment of what everybody else does. That I'm holier than you. I am more sanctified than you. And so their sanctification becomes the honor, the badge of honor of their salvation. But that's what you would call a manufactured sanctification. That's not Holy Spirit sanctification And in fact, that is as dangerous or more dangerous than just a complete lack of holiness. False sanctification is very, very dangerous because it really doesn't leave any room for improvement. People think, well, I'm already holy. I'm already sanctified, so what else do I need to do? I'm doing great. I'm what God wants me to be. And so they have attained a sufficient holiness in their own minds, and so they're self-satisfied with it. But those who recognize that their lives are never what God wants us to be, that we never live up to the standard that God wants, are always striving. And they're much easier to correct when they have something wrong in their lives. So they're not looking at that self-sanctification. They want to be sanctified wholly by the Holy Spirit. Now, I only mention these points this afternoon because the Day of Atonement was a very strange day. The rituals that Israel went through were very meticulous. The order was confusing. The repetitions are just practically nonsensical to those who never realized that you can see Jesus Christ in everything that these Israelites did. Now we study this because we don't want to leave any parts of the Bible to confusion Now, it might take us a while to get to all the parts so that we understand them and explain them or explain them and understand. And we might die before we get to all of those parts. But I can promise that your presence here to learn about Christ in the Old Testament, seeing Christ in the Old Testament, this is more valuable than anything else that you could do this afternoon. So I I would say it's important for you to be here. Now, why is all of this true? Well, because... The Day of Atonement, again, is about Christ. It's, it's consumed with Christ. And it's really a breakdown of the redemptive work of Christ into its constituent pieces so that we can see all that Christ does for us. And there is no other place in the Bible that tells about the work of Christ in such intricate details as we find uh, in Leviticus, speaking of the law and especially the Day of Atonement. Now, this afternoon, we're going to resume the fourth part of our outline, and I apologize to those of you that are not, were not able to hear the earlier parts, but we can't review all of that. I'll just tell you briefly some things before we go on. But the fourth part of our outline is that the Day of Atonement was a day of service, a day of service. And it follows upon these other parts where we talked about humility and a day of sacrifices and a day of imputation. It was a day of humility pictured by the high priest taking off his special garments for glory and beauty and laying those aside and putting on the ordinary white robes of the everyday priest. So he would take those off as he made atonement, lay those aside, and that showed humility. It showed the purity of Christ and the humility of Christ and his motives to set aside his glory, to become a servant, and to go to the inglorious death of the cross. 
It was also a day of sacrifices. Many sacrifices were made, starting with the ordinary daily sacrifices that, as I said, daily, so they're made every day. So it starts off with those. And then there were other sacrifices that were added on that depicted various aspects of atonement. On temple days, when you get into the later period after the tabernacle, on, uh, on uh, temple, in, in the temple on, on the Day of Atonement, there were as many as 500 priests that were involved in bringing sacrifices, making sacrifices for the Day of Atonement. Thirdly, we looked at this day as a day of imputation. This is the day of the scapegoat offering. Uh, this is the day that there were two goats that were chosen, uh, to be sacri- one to be sacrificed, one to be set free. That one that was sacrificed represents Christ in his propitiatory atonement, whereas the other side of it is the uh, imputation of, Christ, of, of our sins to Christ, which is pictured by the priest laying his hands on the head of the scapegoat, confessing the people's sins on the head of that goat, and then taking that goat and setting it free. And that pictured that our sins are taken away from us into places where, where God doesn't remember them anymore. It's all taken away from us. So this is to show sins imputed to Christ. That's the propitiatory part. And then the expiatory part is that our sins are taken away. Our guilt is taken away by the picture of the hands put on the head of this goat. So the scapegoat then emphasizes that side of imputation. I want to make sure that we divide those so we understand why there are two goats that are used on the Day of Atonement. Well, as we speak of atonement, there is no other religion in all the world that has an atonement. Christianity exclusively has an atonement, and that is one of the things that sets us apart from all other religions. We are a peculiar people. We are a different people. The Bible tells us that atonement is necessary for us to be reconciled to God. And since there is no other religion in the world that has an atonement, then they have no way to be reconciled to God. And so no other religion but Christianity can be a path to God. We must come through Jesus Christ. Then fourthly, we began this discussion of Christ's service that shadowed of the Day of Atonement. I'm going to tag on to the last sermon where we started that the Day of Atonement is a day of service. And I, I spoke back then a few weeks ago of the kind of service that Christ offered. In, in the temple days, I mentioned that up to 500 priests were busy preparing animals for sacrifice. But I want you to look at what is peculiar about the Day of Atonement in verse number 17 of this text. Leviticus 16, verse 17 It says, and there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth, that is the high priest, when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. I just mentioned 500 priests that were busy making sacrifices. But in this verse it says, No man shall be in the tabernacle of a congregation when the priest is making the sacrifice for atonement. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not to be any other man inside of the tabernacle because there was only one man that was permitted. That was the high priest. But rather, the tabernacle of the congregation refers to the outer courtyard. That no one is to be in that outer courtyard when the priest is in the process of the cleansing. 
Now the tabernacle was surrounded by a white linen fence, a fence that was much larger than the dimensions of the tent of the tabernacle. And this large fence that went around it, that large area made a courtyard surrounding the tabernacle. And in this court, there was the brazen altar where sacrifices were made. And there was the brazen laver where the priest would go and wash just before he entered into the tabernacle. Now, I have a picture of you uh, for you here. Uh, this is the tabernacle as it's set up. And you can see the white linen fence that, that goes around it. You see the tabernacle there on the back side of that. And... And then uh, where you see the fire, that's the brazen altar. And then just behind that, before the tabernacle, is the brazen laver. This is what the enemy, the enemies of Israel would see as they looked down from the mountains that were surrounding Israel's encampment. They would see the tents of Israel all in their proper places with their proper standards. And they would be camped there, all assembled around and you can see there the tabernacle with the white cloud that's ascending from the holiest place. That's at the back of the tabernacle. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And so the, the, the white cloud there is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. That's God's presence with them. But enclosing all of this is that white fence. And there you have the altar and the laver. Now in verse number 17 of Leviticus 16, that's what it's talking about, this courtyard. Now normally people could enter that courtyard. They could go and see sacrifices as they're being made and watch the activities. Later, when the temple was built, that courtyard was expanded, and there were separate courts for both men and women, and there was a court of the Gentiles that was for Gentile proselytes. But on the Day of Atonement, those courts were all cleared for the cleansing. The priest sanctified all of that area with an offering. He cleansed the area, and everybody was kept out until that was done. So he cleansed himself, then he cleansed the tabernacle, the tent, actually, and the things that are in it. And he cleansed this courtyard area with the brazen altar and also the brazen laver. Now, the symbolism portrayed that everything that man touches is defiled. You can't have people in that courtyard while it's being cleansed or anywhere around there because if man touches it, it is defiled. So that's what the priest is actually doing. He's, he's cleansing it from the defilement of everybody that's been in there, everything that's been touched by man. That all has to be cleansed. And that pictures the way that we come to God, that we have to be cleansed before we can come to him. So there's nothing, it teaches us that there is nothing good in man. Everything that we are is defiled by sin. And so... Everything that is in man must be cleansed before he can be brought into fellowship with God. Now, the interesting thing about that is we don't cleanse ourselves. God does it. God is the one who cleanses us. He cleanses man through the offering of the blood of Christ. And through that offering, he also pledged that he would do something else. And that is that he would purge this entire world and the universe in which we live. That's also in God's plan. And his plan is to consume all of this in a great conflagration at the end. Well, there's a lot to be taught here uh, on these points, especially on our subject of the atonement. Nothing is good. Nothing we do is good. And that should tell you that Christianity is definitely different from false religions. It even separates us from false Christianity. Anybody that teaches that people are basically good does not understand the radical fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden. They don't understand how God really sees us. But if you look at all the world's religions, 
All of them are about self-redemption. All of them are about reviving the basic goodness that they think is in man and channeling that, channeling that towards making a better self and making a better society. So today, the, the uh, most popular religion in America is the religion of self-esteem. It's the religion of positive affirmation. God never said that man is basically good. Man is totally depraved. Every part of us is infected with sin. We're totally unable to please God. We can't get near God in our depravity. Now, I'm not going to make that doctrine our, our study tonight. We're on something else. But I can't fail to mention that when we see it pictured in the Scriptures. But there are some of our Baptist brethren who do believe that there is some sanctity that is left in man. That after the fall, that man still had something good in him because he can repent of his sins and he can turn in faith to Christ. And of course, those two things, repentance and faith, are very good things. I heard one spend about 15 minutes explaining that faith in Ephesians 2.8 is not a gift of God. I'm not going to go there to explain why that idea is so wrong. In fact, that is diabolically wrong. But I will say that belief in man's depravity and inability and our understanding of particular redemption is the only view that is anti-typical of the types that we see in tabernacle worship. But we're going to go on with the main point tonight. What is the truth that's taught by the priests pushing all of these people out of that tabernacle courtyard and then cleansing it? And then further, what is taught by the priests entering into the holy place alone? And even further, and most, most importantly, what is taught by him opening the curtain into the holy of holies to enter that place alone? Well, this is the truth that we want to emphasize tonight. The truth is that Christ did his work alone. Christ did his work alone now back there we need to put that, that saying up there for me if you will. There we go. The truth is that Christ did his work alone. He didn't have any help. He didn't need any help. And no one could help. The work of atonement was lonely work. By himself, the scripture says, he purged our sins. And there was no one capable of doing that but him. Well, we wonder then about what people teach why aren't repentance and faith acts that man can bring to the table of salvation? Well, they could never be because Christ doesn't permit help. Salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Faith is the gift of God because Christ works alone. So everything that's brought to the salvation table, you might say, has to be something that is supplied by God. Now, of course, God doesn't believe for us. He gives us faith Faith is the instrument by which we come to Christ. And faith can't arise in the human heart that's dead in the vileness of sin. And so as the priest must sanctify the tabernacle and the altar and all the environs uh, before sacrifices can be made, so it is that the human heart must be prepared for the reception of the gospel of Christ. The unregenerate heart is dead to God. And it's as much able to react spiritually to a message such as I'm preaching tonight, or to the gospel of Jesus Christ in its simplicity, it's as much impossible for a man to receive that in his own power and for the human heart to understand it as it is for this pulpit to walk outside that door. 
That can't happen. So a priest must sanctify the tabernacle and the altar because he, uh, it pictures Christ doing his work alone. There is no natural sense of the gospel in any person. There is no reception of the gospel in any person because we're dead. Like a radio that doesn't have a battery, it can't pick up a signal. That battery has to be charged, and that same, the same thing happens for the heart of man. It must be energized, it must be, it must be capacitated in order to act in faith. So faith is given to a heart, a man's heart, a person's heart, to be awakened to hear and receive the gospel. Now, as I've said many times, we are receptors, not acceptors. Now, we hear that phrase almost used almost all the time, have you accepted Christ? And if you say it right, I mean, if you really know what you're talking about when you say it, maybe that's not so bad. But the Bible in no place ever says you must accept Christ. The biblical language is you receive Christ. That is, you don't evaluate Christ. God brings Christ to you. Now, that might be a very subtle difference, but haven't we seen as we've studied this that God is in the details that's why we have all these little details. So biblical language, and you look it up, it's always we receive Christ. Not once in Scripture does it say we accept Christ. So faith is excluded as the cause of regeneration. Faith uh, is the fruit of regeneration. It is not the cause. Now, Jesus taught this when he said that first you have a tree, then you have the fruit. The tree bears the fruit. And so we have to understand that if faith is excluded as the cause of regeneration, now let's make sure that we understand that it's not the cause of regeneration because the Holy Spirit works first and He works alone. Then faith proceeds out of that. But since it, it is not the cause of regeneration, that also teaches us that there are no acts of faith that can be the cause of regeneration. Now, in the New Testament epistles, the confusion of acts of faith for salvation arises with arguments concerning circumcision. And the question in the New Testament was, is circumcision necessary for salvation? Is that a component of salvation? Now, often, often in Scripture, regeneration and salvation are not separated. One can stand for both. But the scriptures are also clear in many places that regeneration and salvation, although very closely related doctrines, are not the same thing. And at the same time, they're not separated by time. I mean that there is no one who is regenerated without salvation, and there is no one who has salvation who hasn't been regenerated. And so for that reason, they're sometimes conjoined under one term, salvation, or one term, regeneration. Now, likewise, justification and salvation are often made synonymous, although justification is only one component of salvation. Now, I do want you to understand that because if not, you might be confused if I speak of one of these as uh, standing for a combination of both. So I, I'm pointing this out to, to let you know that acts of faith cannot be a means of regeneration slash salvation any more than faith can be the cause. Now, at the beginning of the church, when the apostles began to preach to Gentiles, circumcision was the battleground doctrine. Paul took on circumcision questions both in Galatians and in Romans. Those are the two great epistles that tell us that we're justified by faith. 
And he had to get circumcision out of the way. That has to be removed before he could teach justification by faith. But circumcision was only representative of a larger class, and that is all acts that are done by faith. Well, the first church was a Jewish church, and this is when Jesus selected 12 Jewish men to be his apostles, and his work was almost exclusively among Jews. Didn't he say, I I have come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus very seldomly worked among Gentile people. Now we do have some exceptions. We have the exception, for instance, of the Syrophoenician woman who was a Canaanite. And Jesus saved her. And he told her that she had great faith. Well, if I was, if I was an Arminian, I would say, well, those, those encounters were just chance encounters. Because the usual fare for his ministry was to go to the lost in Israel. But I'm not an Arminian, so I don't deal very much with chance happenings. The church began as a Jewish church. And you know the prejudices that the Jews had towards Gentiles and the struggle that it was to accept Gentiles into the church. I mean, it took almost a second Pentecostal experience to convince the Jews that Christ had extended his salvation to all people groups. It was not until Peter was convinced that the Gentile Cornelius, that centurion Cornelius, and his family had a like experience to that one that happened on Pentecost that the Jewish church then began to have convincing evidence that Gentiles can be saved. But still, even after that, there was, this, there was always this remaining Jew-Gentile tension. The concept of a Gentile church was accepted only reluctantly by the Jews, and only upon this, upon these terms, upon their terms, the terms of circumcision and the adherence of some other prohibitions that I'm not going to go in now. But gradually, the church became more Gentile. God set aside the Jews. And today, they still wait his visitation to be restored into the kingdom. That will come at the end times. But meanwhile, this belief, though, that... that salvation can be received through acts of faith that never died acts of faith for salvation is another term for a works salvation now you need to know that because satan cleverly disguises his schemes and he dresses them up in christian terms and so his legal work salvation is made plausible by misusing christian ordinances to become the means of salvation When you get into the second century, the Gentile church prevailed. Circumcision was no longer an issue. They they were over that because Jewish influence had waned. And then the focus switched to a major Christian doctrine, and that was the doctrine of baptism. And baptism became the new circumcision. People began to teach that, that baptism is necessary for salvation. Now today, churches like Roman Catholics and Lutherans and Churches of Christ and some others teach that baptism is necessary for salvation. The Roman Catholics are probably the most honest in this false teaching, if honesty is a word that you can use in this context, that if baptism saves, then the best thing to do is to baptize babies and get them saved sooner than later. Now at first, in Roman Catholicism, they didn't baptize infants But this baptismal regeneration doctrine grew and it led them to this obvious conclusion that the best thing to do is to baptize babies. 
And to let you in on a secret that's not really a secret, circumcision, that old Christian nemesis, rose its head again and was brought back into the picture. And I'm talking about a literal circumcision, but it was taught that baptism is a new circumcision. So therefore, it's reasonable to have babies baptized. Now today, there are Protestants that still hold on to that part. Some, like Lutherans, maintain that it is for salvation. But you have others, like Presbyterians and other Reformed churches, that have separated baptism out from salvation. And we do commend them for that. At least that part is true. But they still claim that baptism is a new circumcision. And therefore, infants of believers should be baptized. Now, we should never forget, though, where Protestants come from. Protestants come from Roman Catholicism. And what they did was to hold on to some of Rome's practices, just changing them a little to suit them. So my advice is we need to watch out for Protestants because many of them are only a step away from going right back into the fold of Rome. Well, in the 19th century, there came two fellows out of the Second Great Awakening. Uh, I think most of you are familiar with the Second Great Awakening. The first happened in about the middle of the 18th century. That's the one that was led by Jonathan Edwards and by uh, George Whitfield. And uh, during that time in the northeast part of our country, this, 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 uh, the, the First Great Awakening happened on the entire seaboard of, uh, of the United States. But in the northeast, where Jonathan Edwards preached, uh, there were as many as, they say, 35 to 40,000 people who became Christians under the preaching in the First Great Awakening. But then there was a Second Great Awakening. And in the Second Great Awakening that happened in the early part of the 19th century, there were, there were two men, one who was named Alexander Campbell and the other Barton Stone. And they believed that New Testament Christianity was corrupted. And they said the church is corrupted and there, there is no New Testament church found among the denominations. So they began a restoration movement. That is, that they were set on restoring the church to its New Testament moorings. Now, interestingly, heretics take on all different forms. Christ said that his church would not fail. Isn't that what he said? Matthew 16, 18, his church will not fail. But these two said, oh yes, the church did fail. And we're going to fix it. And the cardinal doctrine that they wanted to use to fix it was the doctrine of baptism. And out of that movement came the Church of Christ, the Christian Church, and the Disciples of Christ. Later, there was another restoration movement claimed. This was the one that was headed by Joseph Smith, who founded the Mormons. But his beliefs are so far outside the pale of orthodoxy that we don't really consider him to be a serious contender in restoration movements. Uh, his surge came much later. So there's this restoration movement that was headed by Campbell and Stone, and they understood at least this much, that only adults can be baptized. They're not going to baptize infants. Only adults can be baptized because they recognize that you also need these two components of repentance and faith. Infants are not capable of repentance and faith. So they began to baptize, not because their candidates had been saved by repentance and faith, but because they believed that you need to contact the blood of Christ. In order to be saved, you need to contact the blood of Christ. So you need repentance and faith, and you also need baptism, because in the water of baptism, you contact the blood of Christ. So, this, this act of baptism is, of course, an act of faith. Believing is an act of faith. Repentance 
essentially is also an act of faith. And they said that baptism is an act of faith. Now, the twist in their doctrine said that saving faith, a faith that saves, includes the act of baptism. So they said that whenever you see in the Bible a statement that says we are saved by faith, that you must also understand that baptism is in there. Now, one of their tricks is to refer to the Gospel of John. John is probably the clearest book in the New Testament regarding faith and the Gospel and the work of Christ in salvation. And that's the reason that we often advise people, the first thing that you do, if you want to understand Scripture, is go to the book of John. The first thing that you want to do, if you want to understand who Christ is and what Christ did, and about salvation, you need to go to the book of John. Now, you all know John 3.16 Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. But in that, in that verse of John 3.16, is there anything about repentance? Does it say that you must repent? Did you know that in the entire Gospel of John, repentance is not mentioned even once? And yet we know that there isn't anyone who's saved without Repentance. And so the Church of Christ preacher says, well, aha, here, here we know repentance and faith are necessary. And so where you add the missing repentance in the Gospel of John, we can add baptism. It takes all three, repentance, faith, and baptism. Now, I want you to stay with me because there is an end to this side path that we're traveling. That if we rightly understand repentance and faith as gifts of God... Both of those acts, repentance and faith, are acts of the mind, acts of the mind, whose disposition towards Christ has changed. So how would you fit baptism into that? Because baptism is a physical act, isn't it? Baptism isn't a disposition of the mind. And then even more compelling against their argument is that baptism is an act that's performed by another person on you. Now, neither we or they will allow that a person can baptize himself. So this shows that repentance, faith, and baptism, although they are acts of faith and they are religious acts, they are not in the same category. They can't be. One is of the mind, the other is a physical act. So in no sense can baptism be anything other than a work of man. But if baptism is perverted, then it becomes a legalistic salvation. Now, let's take all of that and let's fold this into the context of our discussion. Christ did his work alone. There isn't any doubt that that's pictured in the tabernacle on the Day of Atonement. But then along comes a person who says, Oh, but you've got to be baptized to be saved. Well, now suddenly Christ is no longer alone. Now he has help. He has a companion. In fact, he has two companions. He has you as his companion. And then he also has the one who baptizes you. So now Christ has two companions. He's not working alone. Now, likewise, if repentance and faith are not gifts of God given to a heart that's been singular, regener- singularly regenerated by, the, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, then you have a companion to Christ in salvation. He doesn't operate alone. Christ doesn't operate alone. Instead, Christ needs your cooperation. And without it, you won't be saved. Well, of course, we... we preach and teach that you can't be saved without cooperation. God never forces anybody to be saved. 
That's this famed disingenuous argument that we're robots, they say. If you believe that God elects people to salvation as we do, then you believe that God makes people robots. Well, no, we never claimed that anybody was a robot. We teach that there does need to be cooperation, but we teach that that cooperation must first be secured by a monergistic act of God. That means the Holy Spirit working alone. Now, let me return to baptism. The error of baptismal regeneration is ballooned, especially in infant baptismal regeneration. There's no faith or repentance that's involved. The Savior, then, is the priest. He has the power of salvation. And the only thing that he needs to do is to, is to refuse to baptize your baby, and your baby will not be saved. So the priest has the power of eternal life. Now, I said that Roman Catholics are, are honest in this heresy because what I've just told you, they won't deny. They'll say this is the truth. They have no trouble affirming the necessity of the priest for salvation. You must have the priest do these things for you. They have a system that's built on that. They support themselves with it. They sell their religious arts. And I'm not talking about their paintings that they have in their cathedrals. But I mean they sell the rituals. Do you know what this is called? The selling of those rituals? This is the word simony. Now we're getting a little bit of a theological education this afternoon. So I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 8. And I want to show you where this term simony originates. In Acts chapter 8, Philip the Evangelist, who is one of the seven deacons, went to Samaria to preach. And yes, I'll say deacons can preach. Sometimes they probably should. Philip went to Samaria, and this is what happened. Acts 8, verse number 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them. And many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is, is the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that of a long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip, teaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now let me interrupt the reading there for just a minute. Uh, this profession of faith by Simon was false. Now, unfortunately, this is abused by those in the churches of Christ to prove that salvation can be lost. That Simon was saved and then he was lost. Well, the next verses prove that Simon's profession was not genuine. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Then laid they their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. That proves that he was not a true believer. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which he have spoken come upon me. So this is what Simon did. He offered to buy the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's what gave rise to the term simony. Now, through history, this became the buying and selling of religious offices and preferences that can be purchased with money. Now, the Roman Catholic Church perfected simony with what is called indulgences and papal favors. And those favors actually became the dispute that was the fuel of the Protestant Reformation. Today, the Roman Catholic Church continues to traffic in religious preferences by ordering payments for penance, payments for relief from purgatory, for yourself, for your friends, and for your family. And so they'll sell your eternal soul for a few bucks or a lot of bucks. Everything that they do, every religious venue has money attached to it. Now there's an interesting comment that's made in Revelation 18 about the destruction of Mystery Babylon. And we believe that Mystery Babylon will be headed by Roman Catholicism. And it says in Revelation 18.13, if you want to mark that reference down to look at it later in context, it says that they merchandise, they merchandise in the souls of men. So in the New Testament, circumcision came to stand for any religious act called acts of faith that anyone might do to try to procure their salvation. And that would include all the sacraments of Catholicism, especially the Mass, with which they say you can't be saved without. None of the sacraments can be admitted because all of them in some way or another have eternal life attached to them. Some of them constitute mortal sins for which there is no recovery. Others will lengthen the time of purgatory and they require extra payments to mitigate. Now all of that, all of these things are pictures that Christ does not work alone in salvation. But we see in the types in the tabernacle that Christ must work alone. Every person was sent away. There's nobody who stays behind and says, you know something? This is too much for the priest to do alone. There's too much work here to be done. He has to have help, so I'll stay and help him. No way. God wouldn't allow it because that upset the type. Salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. Salvation is in the acts of Christ for you. Not the acts that you do for him. Now the, per the picture of uh, Christ's singular work is accentuated by the work that's done in the tabernacle. Now I said some of these things are a little bit confusing and this is one of the places of confusing, uh, confusion. Let's go to, back to Leviticus 16 and we want to look at verses 11 through 15. Leviticus 16 verses 11 through 15. 
And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony, that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people. And bring his blood within the veil. And do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock. And sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So the high priest went into the sanctuary with blood and a censer. Now we see him in this next picture. If uh, we can see that for just a moment. Uh, this is the priest who is uh, going, getting ready to go into the most holy place. That is the place where the Ark of the Covenant is called the Holy of Holies. So he put fire in the censer that he has in the hand. You see the smoke going there. And he pushed open the veil into the holy place, the Holy of Holies. Inside there is the Ark of the covenant with the mercy seat above it and the smoke of the incense filled the room and covered the mercy seat now keep that in mind and let's go to Hebrews chapter 9 now let, let's leave that picture up uh, Sam if you would for just a minute uh, I'll give you the reference we're going to Hebrews chapter 9 all these things that I just mentioned the smoke there covering the mercy seat are things that we're going to cover in detail later but the point now is that the priest went in alone to make atonement. Some disagree as to how many times he went in on this day. Some say it was twice. Others say he went in four times. The narrative is not perfectly clear. But the fact that he was alone, that is perfectly clear. So in Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 7, Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service in a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it, the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. Now, the first tabernacle refers to the first compartment of the tabernacle. But into the second, that is, into the Holy of Holies, the high priest went alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. There again we see the high priest is alone. Now, the text says that he went in once every year. That, that doesn't refer to the frequency of times that he went in on this one day, because we do see that he went in more than once on this one day, but it refers to the Day of Atonement, that it comes once each year, and that's the only day that he would ever go behind that veil. So can I emphasize this point too much, that what we draw from this is that Christ's work was alone, so you don't bring any fabrication of doctrine that minutely suggests that salvation can be obtained by any help from us. 
And you can underscore all the previous comments. He doesn't ask for help. He doesn't expect any help. You don't have anything to offer. You don't have anything he wants. He accepts only what he has given in supply. And so to offer something unpurged is blasphemy. And that is exactly what repentance and faith would be if they arose from the human heart. If they came from us, they wouldn't be holy. Because they come from a depraved will. You see, there isn't a compartment in the being of man that's untouched by sin. So you don't come with anything that's not sanctified. It's a very serious error to upend Ephesians 2.8 because you have to do it to prop up some corrupted doctrine. But the calumnies against Paul's doctrine don't stop there. To support an aberrant interpretation of Ephesians 2.8, also Ephesians 2.1 is attacked. Faith can't arise from a dead heart, and so they have to argue in Ephesians 2 verse 1 that dead is not dead. Someday, someday, people are going to give an account for their teachings. And if you'll not change to the truth because it's too unpopular, or it'll make you unpopular with your brethren, the brethren who are your peers, then your God is not Jesus Christ. Your God is them. And thus we have one of the greatest fears among independent Baptists today that the truth of Reformed soteriology is now sweeping their ranks. They're afraid of it. They've got to stop it. And so, in fact, they will lie about what we teach if they must. The acceptance of these doctrines has profound effect on those ministries. You see, when God is sovereign, pastors aren't. I'm not your sovereign. God is your sovereign. You, you don't follow me because of what I say. You follow me because of what God says. If God says, I'm telling the truth, then you can follow me. The Apostle Paul talked about that in 1 Thessalonians. You can be an imitator of the Apostle Paul because he follows Christ. And if I follow Christ, then you follow me. But the only way you're going to follow me is if I'm teaching the truth from God's word. Christ will save you if you let him. That's what they teach. Christ will save you if you let him. He needs your permission because he won't invade your territory. And apparently his truth will not invade theirs. I'm content, folks, to stand aside. I am content that if I shall be saved, I shall be saved by Jesus Christ and he will do it all. I don't want any part of it because he's the only one who can save me. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for your word, for the types and pictures that we see in the Old Testament that teach us about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, salvation is in you and in you alone. There is no hope for us to come with anything that we can offer. We're sinful people. We must be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we know, Lord, only you can do that. Father, you sent your own Son to purge us from our sins so that we might be reconciled to you. And Lord, help us to teach that always and never deviate from the truth that salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. He did his work alone. Thank you for that message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 
888-949-94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.